This is an ABC podcast. Hello and welcome to this week's Health Report with me, Norman Swan. Today, predicting a longer life from psychological, economic, behavioural and social factors. What does divorce do for your mortal coil? High heels and your hips. What do you reckon? Good or bad for them? I suspect you're going to be surprised and most men will be left with a difficult decision. And the deteriorating situation with SARS-CoV-2 infection in Victoria. The epidemic curve is steepening alarmingly with more and more cases each day, the vast majority of which are community spread. I spoke to Victoria's Chief Health Officer, Professor Brett Sutton, over the weekend to get an insight into how this battle is being fought, what's left in the armoury and how the public health team is coping. It's a long slog. There's no question about it. I have to keep in perspective that all of us can only do what we can do. There's no question about motivation. There's no question about effort from me, from the team, from the whole of government. But it's a profound challenge and it's complex and we're literally all in it together. We will do our absolute utmost in terms of how we manage this from an isolation, contact tracing, policy setting point of view. But we can't control each and every individual's approach to this. All we can do is try and get the key messages there and urge people as best we can to do what we know works. But there are going to be limits to some of that. And if it gets beyond us, it won't be through lack of enormous effort, that's for sure. What do you think's happened? I mean, Victoria had the strictest restrictions of all and seemed to go on longer than other states. What do you think's happened? Victoria and New South Wales had greater seeding of cases right from the start. International students, international tourism would have come into Melbourne and Sydney more than anywhere else. And so we always had more community transmission. It's much easier as a jurisdiction to follow up those who you know have travelled internationally and their close contacts. When you've got community transmission that just pops up as someone gets tested and you don't know where it's come from, it becomes very hard to find that chain of transmission. So those other policy settings of physical distancing needed to be in place across Australia, uh, but they were always going to work best where case numbers were small and where there weren't those ongoing chains that hadn't been identified by finding those international travellers. So it was always going to be hardest for New South Wales and Victoria. I don't know whether weather has played a part. I know that the coronavirus is now understood to survive better in, in colder conditions. And that's why meat factories have had really explosive cases. I heard of 1,500 positive cases most recently in Europe. So that might have played a part in Victoria. I'm not sure. It's certainly the case that we got down to extremely low levels, but it only takes changed behaviour across the population to tick up again. And I think that's what's happened, in part because other jurisdictions, quite rightly, you know, I would have done the same, changed their policy settings because they had no remaining transmission. So, of course, they were opening up pubs and clubs and stadia and they were easing restrictions faster than New South Wales and Victoria. From the beginning, we had National Cabinet deciding the size of gatherings and, and the shutdown on mass gatherings happened across jurisdictions at the same time. So I think we had a very similar situation going into this. The data that I've seen on, on people movement suggests that Victorians did as well as everyone else and actually held on as long, if not longer, than everyone else. So it wasn't through the fact that people fatigued more in Victoria or gave up earlier, but we certainly weren't quite there in terms of absolute elimination compared to other jurisdictions. And because of that, those changed behaviours means that there's every chance that it ticks up again. That's not an issue if you're in a state with no transmission at all. You could have 100,000 people in a stadium. If there's no virus there, it doesn't much matter how people are interacting. That's the story from New Zealand. Do you think we made a mistake not going for eradication? 
look, eradication has its challenges. Sitting here right now, I'd be very happy if we'd all across the board gotten to a point of eradication because then you're not fighting to sustain these behaviours into the long term because I think we can manage it for now, but it'll be increasingly difficult. Can we do it for six months more? I doubt it. 12 months? Impossible. And so if that's how long it's going to take to get a vaccine, I think it's a much better place of comfort if you've got eradication. It does mean that you absolutely have to have a shutdown border. It means that you absolutely have to monitor for any single case being introduced. But it certainly means that you're not in this continuous, really challenging battle maintaining physical distancing, maintaining the kind of diminished social interactions that we've asked of people for these last four and a half months, which is long enough. That's the challenge with a suppression strategy that you need to keep at it and at it and at it in terms of how you manage people's risk of transmitting to others. How scared are you that this particular outbreak is going to slip out of your control? I think it's a genuine challenge now. I think we're right, you know, we're right at the edge in terms of being able to manage it. I know that there are some countries that have done this for months, South Korea, Taiwan, Vietnam, without having eliminated it, but they've all got to maintain this into the next 6-12 months as well. South Korea's had a tick up in in recent weeks to 20-30 cases a day. We'll take the same approach, intensive testing, intensive contact tracing, but That is no guarantee. And we know that as three quarters of the country goes back to normal way of living, that it becomes even more challenging to tell people that it's not the same here and that they've got to go on with a a more constrained life in terms of how they interact socially and what they get involved in and, and how businesses need to keep the reins on things. And when you look over the border to New South Wales, do you think New South Wales has got it licked? I'm not sure. There's been just the odd community case. It may well be that because those numbers are very small that a a test and trace approach can snuff that out. But if there's more out there, they've certainly got the same policy settings that'll allow transmission to increase. So it's a danger for sure. You know, we've got this strange paradox of kind of having living a life of elimination in part of the country. But, you know, unless we're going to have borders across the board internally ongoing, then that's a dangerous place to be. And how much do you think we're picking up? I mean, early on in the pandemic, the chief medical officer federally said that the modelling suggested we're picking up 80 to 90% of all cases. But I mean, if you're getting 20 or 30 a day, in reality, is it 40 or 50 a day or is it 100 a day in reality? I think it might be 40 or 50, but that's not good enough. We can't afford to be missing 10, 20 or more cases a day. I think early on, it was absolutely accurate that we were picking up 80, 90% based on our calculations around how many people should be presenting to hospital and the fatality rate. So I think uh, that was accurate. What's shifted here demographically, and and it's happened across the United States and, and possibly Europe as well, is that there's a shift to a younger population and it's going to be harder to pick up. I think they're less motivated to come forward for testing. They're less likely to get severe illness and therefore less likely to be hospitalized. And so we're not going to pick them up in the same way. So it might be that We're not getting 80 to 90% now simply because people have milder illness and are kind of less motivated to come forward for testing because they're less likely to get severe disease. What's the story with hotel quarantine? Over the weekend, you've been criticised saying that people are refusing testing before they leave quarantine. What is the story with hotel quarantine? Because you've already had a breakout in terms of security guards at two hotels. 
none of that's related to people failing to test. The main thing with contact tracing and, and quarantine, whether it's at home or whether it's in hotel quarantine, is that people do 14 days and at the end of it, they don't have symptoms and we're happy that they haven't become cases. We've had this additional layer of assurance by testing people early on in their quarantine period and testing very late in quarantine is that additional layer of assurance. Again, if someone's just about to become a case, the testing towards the end of quarantine is an important one because they might just be developing as a case and need an additional 10 days. So the main thing is that they spend 14 days in quarantine, but the testing was an additional layer of assurance that if we've got people with very mild illness that we'll pick them up. But it still means that you could have people walking out of quarantine with COVID-19. Yeah, it's conceivable. We haven't had a single case like that, you know, through all of the 18,000 people who've gone through quarantine and we're not seeing people transmit to others having left quarantine. The outbreaks that have occurred have occurred because of breakdown in infection prevention and control that we clearly need to look at and have done, but it's not been refusal to test that's led to any community transmission. I think you're the only state that's doing genetic testing as a routine when you're picking up virus to see where it's come from. Of all the positive tests you've had in this current outbreak, how many you simply no clue where it's come from? We're certainly seeing some related clusters, but it will be the most recent cases that we haven't yet got genomics back on that will be of greatest interest as to whether they are essentially related to everything that we've seen come out of Keele or Downs, which is a hotspot, or whether there are multiple chains of transmission that are now amplifying. Uh, but that's not through yet. It takes a couple of weeks to get that fuller genomic picture. But as I say, the sporadic cases means that it might be that things that have been at extremely low level and haven't been detected at all are now making themselves manifest, and we might see a number of separate genetic chains appearing a few days ago in the Australian, Peter Van Onslen suggested that one of the problems in Victoria that may have led to this situation is that your health services are structured differently from other states, particularly New South Wales and Queensland, but also to some extent to WA, where there's area health services. And these area health services, say in New South Wales and Queensland, have responsibility for public health in local areas and much more established infrastructure, whereas the health service in Victoria is largely structured around standalone hospitals with almost no responsibility for their surrounding population. How do you respond to that? Yes, yeah, certainly Victoria forever has had a centralised public health structure. It's been very efficient. We've done it with much lower per capita kind of public health workforce. But in terms of being able to surge, we don't start at the same kind of base in terms of the size of the public health workforce as decentralised models. But it's true, there's a bigger business-as-usual workforce that can be mobilised when you've got local health districts that you can call on to step up in cases like coronavirus, where you really need people who've had long-term experience stepping into the fray and, and responding. What powers do you have under the state of emergency that you haven't used yet that you could? <laughs> I've used most of them, to be fair. <laughs> Your saddlebags uh, empty, is it, Brett? <laughs> well, no, look, they're still available uh, ongoing as long as the state of emergency is in place. Classically, what's described is the cordon sanitaire, where you can kind of put a fence around an area that might be a, a really significant hotspot and say, within this area, there are additional measures that come into play and there are behaviours that need to be enforced within that area. That's something that hasn't been used yet, but I guess it's been flagged in as much as we've talked about postcodes or suburbs where we might need to step up a level in terms of managing the risk of transmission 
At the moment, we've done everything statewide and that's worked. But we know that at the moment, we've got areas where there are particular challenges that are very focal and and localised. Whether we'd go to that, I'm not sure. Certainly, it's a measure of last resort, but we shouldn't discount anything in order to get on top of this. It's so profoundly threatening. We have to consider all the tricks in the bag to be able to manage it. People like talking about a second wave. I'm not sure they like talking about it. But I mean, if you if you look at the epidemic curve now, at least in Victoria, translated because Victoria kind of dominates the national situation, the epidemic curve looks ominous. What is your definition of a second wave and how far away are we from it now? I don't think the terminology is great. In the world of pandemic flu, it always you know, referred to a, a resurgence where the population had been fully exposed and had naturally declined through the first period. What we're seeing with coronavirus is a downturn that's really based on the physical distancing that comes into play. And so it's not a wave in the way that pandemic flu works. It's a wave in the way that people's sustaining behaviours fatigues or when things escape because it remains as infectious as it always has. And we've only got a small percentage of the population who've become immune. Countries in Europe are still only at 5 maybe 8%. Australia must be below 1%, below 0.2%. It's tiny. It's absolutely a second peak, and it's going to challenge us in the same way as that first one because in its natural state, one person infects two and a half people, and so that's the curve that we're on at the moment. But we are testing as significantly as at any point anywhere in Australia right through this, and so that is one really important mechanism to be able to turn things around because the pillars of public health response for communicable disease of isolation and finding close contacts and quarantining them is exactly what you can do when you find the cases that are out there and and we're finding a lot, but we've only been at this really enhanced uh, response for the last four or five days. And it does take a week or two to see the effects of that. The numbers that we're seeing at the moment aren't even related to the interventions that we've made. So we need to see that work over the coming week. What's the problem with the National Health Advi- you know, the Advisory Committee? They seem to be really down on masks when the evidence appears to be that they will reduce transmission by about 60 or 70 percent. There's no evidence that it increases risky behaviour, even though that's what comes out of the mouths of some of the people on the National Health Advisory Committee. Why aren't you just saying, you, know, you want to get on a tram, you want to get on a train, You've got to wear a mask. You've got to go into an indoor environment where you can't maintain social distancing. I mean, that's WHO's policy. Wear a mask. Yeah, look, I'm, I'm happy that masks reduce risk. There's no debate in my mind about that. I know that the National Infection Control Expert Group has focused on the fact that, you know, everywhere that we've got to in Australia thus far hasn't required it because we've had relatively lower transmission and that the tools that we've used have driven transmission right down across the country. But with this uptick in Victoria, I'm absolutely focused on saying, well, is there anything in mass that is an additional tool that can add on to our armamentarium that will help us get on top of it? The WHO advice is pretty clear that it does relate to countries with relatively high community transmission and where physical distancing isn't possible. But in Victoria now, certainly there are settings where physical distancing is impossible or becomes very challenging, marketplaces and public transport. And we're seeing community transmission. It's at very low levels. And maybe the national advice is really focused on the fact that we're not at such high levels that it's warranted. But I would take the perspective that when you're really trying to drive numbers down to maintain your test and trace capability, it needs to be considered. So yeah, I've got 
I've got a team working up some advice now, and I think we'll talk about masks in, in those kind of settings for people to be able to choose it and to provide some guidance on the masks at work and how much protection you get. But I'm certainly not of the view that people become complacent and they behave differently that actually puts them more at risk. It's pretty clear that wearing a mask actually might provide a bit more physical distance between you and others as they see you wearing it. That's a, a double bonus, if you like. Because, as you said earlier, there is fatigue in the population, particularly amongst younger people who might be carrying this asymptomatically or with very small numbers of symptoms. Yeah, that's right. And it's not surprising. It's been profoundly challenging to maintain the behaviours to date. And when you're not seeing huge medical effects of huge numbers, how do you get people to do all of the things that are required to reduce transmission? But if masks doesn't have too much behavioural barrier and people can do it with relative ease and they don't feel too imposed upon, then I think it's a worthy consideration for sure. And finally, Brett Sutton, are you getting any sleep? Uh, not as much as I'd like. Um, not many of us are, but, you know, this is this is the most important stuff I'll do in my life, no question. So, But, but how is the um, team sustaining itself? I mean, this is relentless. It's been relentless for four months. And as you say, it's going to go six or 12 months from now. It's it's absolutely challenging. I, I ask myself the same question, how do they sustain themselves? But I think the short answer is they're making profound professional and personal sacrifices because they are absolutely impassioned about protecting lives and they know how critical and important this work is. We're certainly ramping up our recruitment. We're getting people in twinning arrangements so that they can get a bit of a break. We've got a 24-7 roster so that people can hand over, but they're still doing excessive hours. They're still switched on continuously because none of us can get this out of our minds. And so we do need to uh, focus on looking after ourselves as well, because even though we're all sprinting, it's absolutely a marathon. And so that's going to be hard to sustain. Well, Brett, strength to your arm. Thank you so much, Norman. Thanks for joining us. Cheers. A generous and frank interview. Chief Health Officer of Victoria, Professor Brett Sutton. This is RN's Health Report, and I'm Norman Swan. We know that smoking a pack of cigarettes a day, or even less than that, will increase your chance of dying early. It's the same if you eat a diet based on junk food or contract certain diseases. But what about your relationship status, your bank balance, your outlook on life? Researchers in Canada have been trying to tease out the effects of these kind of factors have on dying before your time. Using survey data from the US Health and Retirement Study, they tracked the outcomes of more than 13,000 Americans aged between 52 and 104 over a six-year period. Not 104, that must have been towards the end of it, and have come up with a list of social, psychological and economic predictors of early death. Eli Putterman of the University of British Columbia and lead author of the paper. I spoke to him this morning. We investigated 57 different variables, social factors, behavioral factors, economic factors, psychological factors that they reported back to their childhood all the way to their current living situation. Number one, not surprisingly, was being a smoker at present. So anyone who was a smoker in 2008 had a 91% increased likelihood or odds of dying in the next six years. So almost double the chances uh, of dying. 
Exactly. And then those who had a history of divorce had a 45% increase, so a 50% increase. Regardless uh, of gender? Because past studies have shown that divorce is good for women and bad for men. Yeah, regardless of gender in this data set. So these are adults who are already over 50 years old. They had been already tracked in our data set for 18 years. And it could be that we may have lost a lot of the men because they had a history of divorce. But we did analysis looking men versus women, and there were no differences. Alcohol abuse was our third most risky factor, increasing it by 36% specifically. You know, other factors were financial difficulties, history of unemployment, even lower life satisfaction and negative affectivity were also predicted Meaning in the that top you were 10. down on yourself, feeling depressed and negative about life. Yeah, exactly. That you experience more, you report more, you feel more negative emotions on a daily basis or on a weekly basis, however the questions were asked. And you didn't find that early childhood factors made a difference? We did find that early childhood psychosocial factors made a difference. History of abuse, history that their parents were drug or alcohol users, that they got into trouble with the police. Economic factors were not predictive of mortality. And again, it could be a selection bias that these people already had so many difficulties in their life that they have already died by the time we had their data. So what's the mechanism going on here? Are they independent risk factors? In other words, if you've got financial difficulties, that is a risk factor for death in its own right? Or does it lead to other behaviours which cause you to die? And if it's a risk factor in its own right, what's causing you to die? That is the number one question in my mind. What is the pathway here? So from a lifespan approach, they all feed each other, right? Your early childhood psychosocial adversities, having difficulties with your parents, they inherently shape our behaviors, our use of alcohol, our smoking behaviors, our physical activities. When you just do analysis of each variable predicting mortality, we definitely see that each one of these factors kind of on their own has an impact. When we included all of the factors where all of these variables are all in the model all at the same time, 20 of them really stood out. And they were the same 20 that were pretty much at the top of our list when we looked at the independent ones. And just finally, what does it tell you about intervention? I think we need to expand our minds at the individual and at the policy level outside of just smoking behaviors and outside of just alcohol abuse or helping people who are unemployed. We have to think about people who have experienced divorce, that perhaps that they are financially struggling or they are struggling with their health or their mental well-being, and that we need to start seeing that there might be some other places to intervene. If we do shift divorce, let's say, or the impact that divorce might have on them psychologically and biologically and financially, if we can shift that, do we then shift mortality? That's where it should be going. Eli Putterman has a Canada Research Chair at the University of British Columbia in Vancouver. Okay, back to that question at the start of the show. What do you reckon about wearing heels if you've arthritis of the hip? Good idea? Or bad? Well, David Hunter has the answer. David is Professor of Rheumatology at the University of Sydney and the Colling Institute. And his special interest is the most common form of arthritis, yet the one about which probably least is known, osteoarthritis. Welcome back to the Health Report, David. Thanks very much, Norman. Why the study? Well, for many people out there in the community, they have pain in their hip. Uh, They don't know what causes it. And we set about to try to understand what factors might cause exacerbations of pain. And shoe wear was one of them. But in addition to that, we were interested in sleep and fatigue and activity and weather and sexual activity. But 
we found this finding and it was kind of converse to what we anticipated we would find. So what did you do in the study? We recruited about 250 people with osteoarthritis of the hip and we followed them for three months and we assessed them every 10 days during that three-month period. And we compared the time periods when they had a pain episode with time periods when they didn't have pain in their hip and assessed to see what triggers might have predisposed them to have an exacerbation of their pain. And in this particular study, we were assessing heel height and the types of shoes people were wearing. Um, and what we found is that when people were wearing higher heels uh, compared to time periods when they weren't wearing higher heels, so more than two and a half or five centimeter heels, their odds of having a, an exacerbation of pain in their hip was halved uh, when they had high-heeled shoes on. Now, it's not a randomised trial. It's observational, but nonetheless, that's quite a, that's quite a lot. Yeah, no, it's uh, it's quite profound. It's a case crossover study, and it obviously, I think, needs to be demonstrated in other study settings as well. Why should but this the lo- be the case? I mean, you constantly hear how high heels are poison for your joints. Yeah, and I'm, I'm not necessarily countering that, particularly for feet and ankles and knees. The, the mechanics of the high heels and the impact they have on those other joints is, is not great. But from a hip perspective, our theory would be that it changes the tilt and alignment of the pelvis and the lumbar spine so it shifts the contact stress and pressure in one area of the hip and moves it to another area that potentially is not as damaged thereby the person experiences less pain in an observational study like this where um, you you find this you've got to look for other clues that it might be cause and effect rather than something else that's going on people might be you know dolled up to go out for the evening feeling better and therefore they don't feel you know, male or female, don't feel good about themselves. And so it's not really related to the high heels at all. So the way to get through that, one of them is that uh, is a dose relationship. So the higher the heel or the longer you wear the heels, the less pain. Did you find a dose effect? We did actually find a dose effect. So we didn't actually have enough people in the greater than five centimetre heel to actually demonstrate whether the higher heel had a bigger so effect. So six, six inch stilettos did not cut it. You, don't, you can't comment on six-inch stilettos. No, we didn't have enough of those, unfortunately. But um, we did find a dose effect as far as the duration of time a person wore their heels for. And so that uh, compared with when they were wearing it for more than six hours, compared to when they didn't wear heels, they had a third of the odds of experiencing exacerbation of pain in their hips. So there was a dose response as far as time's concerned, but um, I don't know about the six-inch stilettos yet. We'll have to work on that one, Norman. Well, I look forward to you being the guinea pig, um, Professor Hunter. (laughs) Well, if this this is right, what can blokes do? Well, I I mean, this could be quite discriminatory. No, not necessarily. There are a number of shoes out there that blokes can wear if they are height-deprived that have higher heels. So I don't know that this is necessarily just a gender-specific effect, albeit osteoarthritis is obviously much more common in women than it is in men. So the message here is probably more pertinent uh, given the gender specificity of the disease. But men can still get higher heels if they truly wanted to do that as well. But I think before we generalise, I think we definitely need to demonstrate this in another study um, and potentially in a trial setting. And did they get sore knees? We didn't. We don't know that, um, so I can't, can't honestly say. But if um, has anybody actually this, studied this in knee arthritis? I mean, it's, it's it's anecdotal, but it's anecdotal in hip arthritis as well that hips make it worse. So that you've counter, you know, you've so countered that. So we've 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 assessed this at the knee level as well and found that 
high heels were not great for knees as far as pain exacerbation is concerned. Um, so if a person has both knee and hip pain, you're probably better off not following this little line of advice. You, you studied sex. Are you prepared to divulge what happens with sex? So that's that's in the works, Norman. So we're interested in what particular sexual positions um, and sexual what impact hip osteoarthritis has on sexual function and the satisfaction it might have for a person's partner. Um, at, and at this point, too soon to say. Too soon to say. Okay. And sleep, same thing? Sleep and fatigue both exacerbate uh, pain exacerbations in the hip, as does poor mood. Um, and in addition to that, not surprisingly, uh, hip injury. But sleep after sex, we'll have to wait. Yeah. <laughs> David, thank you for joining us. Thanks very much, Norman. Great to be along. Just destroyed his career. David Hunter is Chair of Rheumatology at the University of Sydney and the Colling Institute of Medical Research. I'm Norman Swan. This has been The Health Report. I hope you can join me next week. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.